3: If pulling off one of the largest cash heists in U.S. history was the easiest step in Victor Herrera's mission to help fund Puerto Rico's independence movement, it's what happened after that day in 1983 that became the more difficult part of the operation, getting himself and the stolen $7 million in cash out of the country. For that, Victor would need help. A lot of it. Fortunately for him, he had it. Remember those two car honks the guards heard on the night of the robbery? According to police documents, they were to alert a senior member of Los Macheteros, who was waiting outside the Wells Fargo Depot in his
4: own car. Nobody knew at the time was that Juan Segarra and Filiberto Ojeda Rios were lurking around in the shadows as the masterminds of this thing, waiting for Victor to do what he was gonna do. previously on White Eagle. No one in law enforcement had any clue that a group of radical independistas on an island in the Caribbean were knocking off armored cars in Hartford, Connecticut.
5: A lot of Puerto Ricans that joined pro-independence movement in the 60s, 70s grew up facing discrimination, racism, poverty. Even in the community, people would talk about it from a perspective of, look, he took some of that and he gave out toys and, you know, he did it out of frustration. The Macheteros were upset
4: that they weren't getting the attention that they thought they deserved for this patriotic expression. They wanted to get some publicity for it.
3: My name is M. William Phelps. I'm an investigative journalist and author of more than 40 true crime books. What you are about to hear is the true story of a heist, one that funded an international independence movement and sparked an investigation spanning nearly four decades. This is White Eagle. There are a few key players in this story. Victor Herrera is one. Filiberto Ojeda Rios is another. A third, and the man I immediately set my sights on when I set out to do this podcast, was Juan Zegara Palmer. At the time of the robbery, he was considered one of the Machateros' top soldiers and is often called one of its founders. And, as Hartford Current reporter Ed Mahoney explains, Juan was more than just an accomplice on the night of the robbery, he was a mentor to Victor Herrera in the months preceding and following that night.
4: Cigar is the big puppeteer on this thing. And so what he's training Victor on what to do with the robbery and the money and that sort of thing. In many ways,
3: Juan was the go-between for Victor and Los Macheteros. He claims to be the person who introduced Victor to Filiberto and other members of the group. And according to several sources I've spoken with, he remains in close contact with Victor's family to this day.
5: His father was a well reputed lawyer in Puerto Rico who sent his kid to this boarding school in New England and then he goes to Harbor.
3: Dr. Jose Atiles, who you heard in the last episode, is an expert on anti colonial movements, which includes Los Macheteros.
5: The story of Segarra Palmer, I'm sure that. you you might have access to him and to his history. It's really interesting.
3: Dr. Atillos is right. I did have access to Juan. I had interviewed him at length and planned to use hours of recorded conversations in the podcast. But after weeks of back and forth, Juan abruptly pulled out of the project, deciding it was in his best interest not to participate was disappointing of course here's a man who was there an intricate spoke in the wheel of the wells fargo operation who expressed a great desire to share his side of the story but then declines fortunately for us though juan is a talker he's spoken at length about the heist in his time with los macheteros most notably in the last american colony a documentary produced by northern light productions The producer graciously shared Juan's interviews from the documentary with me. Because in the end, to truly understand what really happened that night in West Hartford, and in the years that followed, to get both sides of this story,
6: you need to hear from someone who was there every step of the way. I was waiting for him outside. Uh, It was the longest hour or whatever of, of my entire life. By the mid-80s, law enforcement knew about Juan
3: Zagara and Los Macheteros' involvement in the Wells Fargo robbery. But the specifics, the detailed accounts of what actually happened, took decades to unravel, thanks, in large part, to Juan Zagara. Juan has always been squirrely about his initial introduction to Victor Jarena, but has admitted that Victor traveled at some point to see Filiberto in Puerto Rico to discuss logistics of the robbery and his future as a fugitive. After Victor was given the green light for the job, the group went into planning mode. And by March of 1983, Victor was having regular conversations with Juan Zagara using local payphones to avoid a paper or electronic trail. For much of the spring and summer of 1983, Juan Zagara and Los Macheteros were laser focused on Aguila Blanca, White Eagle. The code name given to the West Hartford Wells Fargo operation. Then, in August that same year, Juan and Filiberto flew to Connecticut to help Victor finish polishing every last detail, including rehearsing the more risky aspects of the robbery scheduled for the following month.
6: We did several role plays in motels in the Hartford area. We rented a room, so he practiced grabbing me by the neck and (laughs) taking me down to the ground. So there was gonna be no question about him being able to immobilize the guy with the element of surprise and then take him down.
3: Juan told the producer of The Last American Colony that he and Victor also practiced driving from the Wells Fargo Depot to local motels, timing each trip until they had it down to a science. After the robbery, They drove directly to the Swiss Chalet Inn, emptied the money out of the Buick LeSabre, and took off. By the time they were gone, police would have just arrived at the Wells Fargo Depot.
6: I felt we had pulled off a great job. Nobody had been caught. Nobody was hurt.
3: Yeah, I I was arrogant. From there, both men would help Victor embark on a daring interstate journey the first part of which included a less conspicuous form of transportation.
4: They bought a motorcycle, they put him on the motorcycle,
3: and Victor left from there. During his drive north from West Harford, Connecticut to Springfield, Massachusetts, Victor tossed his wallet at a rest stop along the Massachusetts Turnpike. That wallet, which contained his ID, was later discovered by Department of Transportation employees. Victor eventually
4: ended up in Boston and the cash ended up in Springfield, where it was hidden.
3: The motorcycle was the perfect solution to Los Macheteros' first obstacle, how to get one of the country's most wanted men safely out of West Hartford. The second, much larger hurdle, was how to get about a half ton of stolen cash where it needed to go. Turns out, Juan Zagara and Filiberto Ojeda Rios had already thought that scenario out as well. It's
4: a combination of the Macheteros, but principally Ojeda and Cigara are up in Boston and they buy a loader home. And uh, they have somebody, one of these Macheteros who's some kind of a carpenter, you know, builds a bunch of false walls and things like that into the thing. About two weeks after the heist, Juan
3: hid Victor and some of the money behind the walls of a camper trailer. And the pair headed to Mexico, taking some of the stolen cash with them. In the months that followed, other members of Los Macheteros and their associates would follow suit, travel to New England, load up a car or camper, and take chunks of cash across the border into Mexico. In all... The group transported more than two-thirds of the Wells Fargo money out of the U.S. that first year, despite having some dangerously close calls with law enforcement. Case in point, in August of 1984, Juan Zagara's cash-heavy camper trailer flipped over on the Pennsylvania Turnpike.
6: My friend loaned me his pickup truck and camper. We were on the turnpike in, in Pennsylvania going down this pretty steep hill. And uh, this semi blew past us, and we ended up flipped over, facing in the opposite direction on the right-hand lane of of the vehicle. The money that was hidden in the wall behind the walls of the of the trailer, you know, the panels burst. One of us jumped in the 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 trailer and started throwing the money in bags and, and stashing it back be- before the state police arrived and you know we got past that one
3: mexico was the pit stop of choice for los Machateros. it was also a place where they could easily communicate with operatives from the cuban government including the man who would help smuggle victor Herrera out
4: of the country i always called him a cuban spy and he was always upset with me for saying that because he considered himself some kind of diplomat But, you know, Cuba's had a diplomatic department called the Department of the Americas, whose function was to foment, you know, leftist insurgencies across Latin America. And he was associated with that. The Cuban spy,
3: whose real name is Jorge Massetti, eventually became disillusioned with Fidel Castro and left his job with the government. He even wrote a book about it. But back in 1983, he played an instrumental role in the Macheteros' Wells Fargo heist. According to Ed Mahoney, Massetti had met Juan Zagara and other members of Los Macheteros in the months before the robbery and even gave them $50,000 to help pull it off. An investment, perhaps.
4: They provided the Macheteros with The stuff that they injected the guards with and some type of crazy radio transmitter that probably didn't work anyway, and a bunch of things like that. Massetti told
3: Ed Mahoney that the group went to great lengths to help Victor get out of the country. They dyed his hair and Victor hid out in Mexico's Cuban embassy, where they helped him acquire a fake passport. From there, Victor boarded a flight to Cuba, along with the first batch of cash tucked inside Cuba's diplomatic pouch.
4: The thing is, the FBI's not doing anything because they don't know anything about this. I mean, they're still looking, you know, for some gang of Irish thugs from Charlestown, you know, who came down and knocked off an Auburn car. I mean, they have no idea what's going on. By that time, Victor Herrera had been secreted in Cuba. The plan was that they would get Victor over there and he would be out of the reach of the American authorities. There's all kinds of people in Cuba that are you know, hiding out from American authorities.
0: I bet you're
1: smart. Yeah, and you like to hold your own in the group chat. We can help you drop even more knowledge. My name is Martine Powers. And I'm Elahe Azadi. We host a daily news podcast called Post Reports.
3: If you've grown up in the United States, chances are you've heard a lot about Cuba, our time capsule island of a neighbor just 90 miles off the coast of Florida. The relationship between the two countries is far too complex to explain in one sitting. For that, we'd need an entire episode. But here are some of the broad strokes. Like Puerto Rico, Cuba was annexed by the United States after the Spanish-American War. It was granted independence soon thereafter, but the United States retained large swaths of land, military bases like Guantanamo Bay, and a chokehold on Cuba's economy. All that changed in the 50s when its enigmatic former leader, Fidel Castro, helped mount a revolution that toppled the country's American-backed president. While the U.S. initially recognized Cuba's new government, the relationship soured. American citizens fled the island, and the U.S. government launched dozens of unsuccessful attempts to overthrow Castro's government. Fidel Castro died in 2016, after nearly a half-century in power. Critics called him a terrorist and dictator who bankrupted Cuba's economy and, ruthlessly, Punished all forms of dissent. Admirers saw him as a revolutionary icon who oversaw improvements to literacy and life expectancy and helped mobilize anti-imperialist movements around the world, including Puerto Rico. There's a famous song that says that Cuba and Puerto Rico are the two wings of one bird. And so obviously our histories are tied through the Spanish-American War, and we've always been kind of looking to see what the other is doing and in close connection among artists and intellectuals. That's Dr. Yarimar Bonilla-Ramos. She's a political anthropologist and the director of the Center for Puerto Rican Studies at Hunter College in New York. For a long time, Puerto Rico was a kind of ambiguous zone and during that time, politics cemented around two main currents. There were the folks who wanted Puerto Rico to be part of the United States and who always imagined that to be what was to be expected, but other folks felt that that was not what they wanted and they wanted to be their own nation and so there was always an independence movement growing and growing steadily. Castro and many others behind Cuba's revolution understood this. And while there were thousands of people who fled the violence in Cuba for Puerto Rico, others saw the Cuban revolution as a model for sovereignty. Among them, Filiberto Ojeda Rios, the leader of Los Macheteros.
7: After the Bay of Pigs, 1962, I became aware of him
3: initially in New York, actually. Bob Heibel. Who spoke in the last episode spent 25 years with the FBI, finishing his incredible career as a SAC or special agent in charge. If there's an agent who knows the relationship between Puerto Rico and America and how Los Macheteros factor into that equation, it's Bob.
7: Now, the Cuban intelligence service, which was called G2 at that time, took the offensive and began to send sleeper agents out.
3: And Filiberto was one of those sleeper agents. The G-2 is a military intelligence service, or as others call it, state security. Its agents were trained by the German Stasi and the Soviet KGB, and were responsible for intelligence, counterintelligence, and disinformation activities inside Cuba and abroad. So from the beginning, Fidel Castro was a total supporter
7: of gaining independence for puerto rico and his modus operandi of course was supporting revolution to do that in any form
3: that worked in 1966 castro told a group of world leaders quote any revolutionary movement in any corner of the world can count on the help of cuban fighters and he made good on that promise About a decade later, right as the U.S. and Cuba were in talks to improve diplomatic relations, Castro intervened in an armed operation of the African nation of Angola, and more important for us, in Puerto Rico's pro-independence organizations. The move derailed talks between Cuba and the U.S., but appealed to Filiberto Ojeda Rios, who believed deeply that colonized people, which in his view included Puerto Ricans, had a right to armed struggle. What's more, he felt it was critical to reclaiming their identity.
5: Filiberto is a very interesting figure. First of all, he was a trumpet player with one of these 50s bands that started moving to more pro-independence, or radicalized, if you wish. And at some point, he started uh, moving to Armstrongs, or more to left wing of the pro-independence movement. At some point, he ended up in Cuba, getting uh, training. I think it was a revolution that showed a lot of Puerto Ricans that they could have an armed movement and that create the condition for mass mobilization. Cuba's
3: revolution in the fifties inspired Filiberto. And Castro's government gave him the
4: tools he needed to try and replicate it. He viewed himself as a patriot. And he was fighting for truth, justice, the American way. He thought he was a George Washington of
3: Puerto Rico. After Cuba, Filiberto went to New York and later Puerto Rico, eventually recruiting Juan Zegara, whom he met in 1972. Like Filiberto, Juan was born in Puerto Rico His family was wealthy and he had a long history of resistance to Spanish and American colonialism. As a teen, he attended the prestigious Phillips Academy in Andover, Massachusetts and later Harvard University where in 1969, Juan witnessed the violent suppression of hundreds of students protesting the Vietnam
6: War. The context was that Vietnam had won the Cuban Revolution at that time was like a beacon to a lot of Latin America. The, the tide of history is on the side of anti-colonialism. We, we should be able to, to prevail. In those years after Harvard, Juan
3: began training with Filiberto, and in 1976, helped found Los Macheteros. Like Cuba's revolutionaries, Los Macheteros used a clandestine cell system to organize its activities. A central committee led the organization, but individual cells carried out operations, and information was kept to a need-to-know basis. Government documents show that Los Macheteros cultivated dozens of fake identities. For example, in order to buy weapons for the group, Juan would troll graveyards, picking out and then using names of the deceased to apply for birth certificates and driver's license. He also led weapons training, having learned to fire a gun at the Harvard Shooting Club.
6: My expectation was that either we won or I would end up in prison or dead. Those were the three options. And you know, felt that more likely than not, prison or death would be the more likely outcomes. But at that time in my life, I was, I was ready to, to take on that, that risk and that responsibility.
3: In many ways, Filiberto and Juan were the ideal match for the pro-independence mission. Intellectual, courageous, and ready and willing to give up their lives for a cause they believed in deeply. After founding Los Macheteros, they would go on to mastermind more than a dozen violent attacks against the US government and major institutions in Puerto Rico in the name of independence. Then in January, 1981, the group made international headlines as part of its protest to a draft registration on the island.
4: A Puerto Rican independence group, which calls itself the Machete Wielders, claims it knocked out half the planes of the island's Air National Guard earlier today. Time bombs planted at Muniz Air Base blew up nine jet fighters and damaged two others. Nobody was injured. Damage was put at $45 million.
3: Juan Zagara was integral in planning and carrying out that attack, even touring the Muniz Air National Guard base with his family and taking pictures in front of the planes to indicate where the bombs would go.
6: The final gift was when the National Guard had an open house on the base, so I I brought my kids in. To, to look at the planes, went right up to the blades, took pictures of them. <laughs> you know, and, for, and that helped us to establish exactly where the, the explosives was gonna be located. To fund its efforts, Los Macheteros
3: frequently robbed major corporations. In fact, before the West Harford success, the group made at least four attempts at robbing Wells Fargo armored vehicles in Puerto Rico. The last of which involved a number of heavily armed militants who got away with $587,000 in cash and checks before shooting and killing the driver. While the money from these robberies helped, the group kept many members on its payroll and needed cash for salaries. So after recruiting Victor Herrera, they jumped at the Wells Fargo opportunity. There's no way to really know the complete or even true story of how Los Macheteros first connected with Victor Herrera, but, in the Last American Colony documentary, Juan tells his version about how he met Victor.
6: This guy approached me and he says, you know, he's working on an armored truck and he transports between 7 to 10 million dollars every Monday and he wants to donate it to the struggle. It's like, whoa, it's almost too good to be true.
3: Six weeks after the West Harford heist, Los Macheteros grew even bolder. Hours after they fired the law rocket on the FBI's federal building in San Juan, a woman phoned the local Associated Press offices on behalf of Los Macheteros, taking credit for the attack, which she said was launched in support of the people of Grenada at the height of the U.S. invasion there.
4: Here's reporter Ed Mahoney. One... Cigar is, you know, protests about this being a nonviolent situation. Notwithstanding, the FBI had a different point of view. They thought it was very violent, and they thought there was a lot of property damage. And, you know, there was aqueducts getting blown up. There were armored cars getting ripped off. There were banks getting knocked off. There were sailors getting shot. There were jet planes getting blown up. I mean, there's a lot of stuff going on. And, you know, somebody in Washington said, you know something? We can't let this continue. Go down and stop it
3: however careful its soldiers tried to be. Mistakes like the one Los Macheteros made after firing the law rocket were costly. Take for example, that seemingly inconsequential parking ticket found in a car near the federal building. That one scrap of paper set off a chain of events that eventually led to the FBI surveying Filiberto Ojeda Rios's car and a number
4: of Los Macheteros' safe houses. Filiberto was on everybody's top 10 list because, you know, Filiberto was a member, almost a charter member, of the Cuban Directorate General of Intelligence. So that got everybody's attention. It
3: was in April of 1984 when federal agents obtained a warrant to go inside one of the safe houses. There, they found dozens of internal Macheteros documents, including code names for various operatives and proof of a relationship with the Cuban government. It was more than enough to justify installing wiretaps. And in those conversations, they learned about the group's involvement in the Wells Fargo robbery and heard conversations between Juan and Filiberto discussing whether to smuggle Victor's fiancé, Ana Soto, out of the U.S. and into Cuba, as they had promised
4: Victor from the start. They're talking about trying to smuggle Victor's fiance into Cuba so they can be together again. And, you know, the Cubans are saying, forget about it, you know, what what do you think we're running here? You know, this isn't some kind of lonely hearts club we got going over here.
3: The wiretapped conversations would also highlight the ideological differences in the organization. As we saw with Wells Fargo, Los Macheteros weren't shy about taking credit for their work. But how and when to seek out the press became a major point of contention within the organization. Should they send money to local publications? When was the right time to take credit for the heist? Most importantly, who should have access to all that stolen cash?
4: They split up the money. but What happens was Catherine didn't have a lot of money, but he gave him guns. And he gave him training and he gave him encouragement and he gave him support and he gave him backup i think the money went to cuba on the plane with victor and then in the final analysis they said where's our money and they said gastros said what money and they said the money we stole we said when well, you could have it we're going to take half of it and that caused a lot of agita among the macheteros because hey we stole the money it's our money
3: but money Especially stolen money changes everything, particularly as Ed Mahoney explains for folks planning big things for the cash.
4: They were going to launch diplomatic initiatives with the insurgents in Nicaragua and El Salvador, they were going to finance revolutions and said, These people were kind of crazy with their ideas. And being doctrinaire Maoists and Marxists, they kept, you know, beautiful notes of every internal discussion and debate they ever had. And there was a lot of dissent and disappointment that they didn't get to keep all their money because the Cubans took half of it, or Castro took half of it. There was actually some conversation from Filiberto saying, hey, buddies, live with it, all right? (laughs) What are we going to do about it? We're going to attack Cuba? Forget about it. They got the money, they got the money. That's the way it goes. Here's former FBI agent Bob Heibel again. What the money did was corrupt
7: the demonstrators. You had them break into different groups. Some wanted to keep the money. They didn't want to send any more money to Cuba. You had some of them who had access to the money and began
3: to spend the money. My source in the organization agrees. He said by late 1984, the group had started to fracture. Even publicity efforts like the toy giveaway on Three Kings Day became controversial and a point of contention.
7: They wanted to own it and they wanted to create the impression of being a group that, you know, looked out for the poor and, you know, just to get their name out.
3: Los Macheteros wanted to own it. And they did. But all that talk about the money, how to spend it, when to admit they'd taken it. Now, those discussions would have major consequences and force the first domino in a long line to topple over. Next time on White Eagle.
4: The FBI raids began after dawn in San Juan and nearby cities. 11 people were rounded up in Puerto Rico. Another was arrested in Dallas, one more in Boston.
3: Things fall apart. White Eagle is written and executive produced by me, M. William Phelps, and iHeart executive producer, Christina Everett. Additional writing by our supervising producer, Julia Weaver. Our associate producer and script supervisor is Darby Masters. Audio editing and mixing by Christian Bowman. Our series theme, Forms Regal or Grand, is written by Aaron Coughlin. Thanks to Arlene Santana and Will Pearson at iHeartRadio and a very special thank you to Northern Light Productions and Bester Cram for allowing us to use clips from the documentary, The Last American Colony, which is available to stream on demand. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.